there. Welcome to another week of A Walk Through the Parks, a podcast. Um, It is week two and it's still not any less awkward to just start talking. (laughs) This is my, you know, I've tried this a couple of times now, just just like last week. But yeah, if anyone has any suggestions for things I can start out with saying just to kind of, I don't know, make things a little less awkward, that'd be appreciated. Feel free to let me know. Um... Yeah, but thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for listening to the pilot episode last week all about Arges National Park. Um, I had some good feedback from that. Um, a lot of people enjoyed it. So thank you so much for your support. Um, continue to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Spotify and Apple are the two most influential, but of course, Anywhere you listen to podcasts is also greatly appreciated. So thank you so much. Um, This week, we're going to be talking about Olympic National Park in Washington State. But before I get started, um, I had someone ask if I could talk a little bit more about anthropology and kind of define it a little bit more. I kind of touched in it a little bit last week. Um, For those of you who may not have listened last week, I talked about how I am currently studying a, uh, well, pursuing a degree in interdisciplinary studies, and my three main focuses are anthropology, history, and communications. Um, So yeah, I do not blame people for not knowing what anthropology is. I barely knew what it was when I first started studying it, and it's just not something that is talked about a whole lot, I don't think, I don't feel like at least. And I, this will apply to this episode. So I felt it was appropriate to just give a little tiny refresher. So this, just as a whole, anthropology, the field of anthropology is all about the study of humans. And within the field of anthropology, there are four defined fields. Um, and I'll just go ahead and list those off and talk about each of those. Um, there's biological, archaeology, cultural, and linguistic. So biological anthropology uh, deals with both human and non-human primate evolution. So basically just what makes us biologically human, how we've and how we've evolved to the state we are today in our relation to primates and just all those things like that. So that's biological, it's more scientific. Then there's archaeology. Uh, which is the study of prehistoric and historic remains left behind by humans. Uh, That could be architectural, um, like physical items, landscapes. Uh, Yeah, so like the pyramids or like burial sites, uh, items such as like clothing or tools or things like that. Um, That's all considered under the umbrella of archaeology. Um, Then geospatial technologies also kind of work hand in hand with archaeology too. Fun fact that I did not know before studying archaeology. Um, Then cultural anthropology is the study of social patterns, rituals, and processes within and across cultures. So basically it's like, I don't know, this is just like making one up, but like, why do people in China do this one thing this specific way while the people like like we in the U.S. do it this way? You know, like, what's up with that? Like, how did they get to a point where they're 
doing it their way and how do we get to our point of doing it our way you know things like that and also just like social hierarchies and social patterns and all that all that fun stuff um and then linguistic anthropology deals with how language has evolved and dispersed globally over time and how and why we have the varying languages that we have today around the world and how individual languages have evolved um so like a good example of this (laughs) is that recently i heard what old like true old english sounded like just a couple hundred years ago like not not too far gone um and it's crazy just how different it sounds not just from like a vocabulary standpoint but like from a pronunciation standpoint it just it sounds like you can barely comprehend what they're saying and it's not an accent thing it's not again it's not like a vocabulary thing it's just it's a pronunciation thing so it's just really interesting you know i i don't speak any other languages besides english i barely speak english (laughs) at that but um Yeah, I think it's really interesting still just to learn about those kinds of things. And then within those four fields of anthropology, there are more subfields, tons and tons and tons. Um, A couple that you guys may recognize that you may have heard um, on TV or in books or I don't know, just like mentioned, like these are the ones that I recognized whenever I was first learning about them. So. A couple of those are like forensic anthropology. So like if you are really into true crime uh, or pay attention to the news, you probably heard of like forensic anthropologists being called to the scene to help identify remains. Um, They work very closely with uh, law enforcement a lot of the time or criminology experts and such like that, which I think is extremely interesting. There's also ecological anthropology, paleoanthropology, primatology, medical anthropology, historical archaeology. And then there's like random ones like I cannot remember specifically what it is called. So I'm not going to say (laughs) what I think it is because I don't want to sound completely stupid. But like I have a professor, for example, who is she's really into teeth, like (laughs) not in like a weird way, but like she yeah she thinks teeth are awesome and great and she knows way more about teeth than anyone i've ever met in my life she can look at just random bits of teeth and be like oh yeah that is probably from an individual from the ages of this and this and this was their diet and this is how old they probably are and this is how old the you know just from a standpoint here's how old the person probably was when they died like she can be able to tell all those things just from the teeth alone so there's a lot of like specific areas within specific specific areas uh yeah so it can get pretty technical but yeah anyway so hold on to that information because this will come in uh handy later in the episode but yeah so that's that's a little rundown of anthropology okay so i'm going to start off with talking about the uh, settler history of the park and how the park uh, was established in and of itself just like i did last week Okay, so this is from the National Park website, but uh, it talks about how um, by the 1880s, the Olympic Peninsula um, had gained kind of 
national recognition as uh, just being a really special place from the mountains to the rainforest to the unique wildlife that is found there. Um, by 1890, naturalist John Muir, Washington Congressman James Wickersham, and Lieutenant Joseph O'Neill, who led the first well-documented exploration of the peninsula's interior, each respectively proposed creation of a national park on the Olympic Peninsula. Um, and then by 1897, the area received its first designation as an Olympic uh, forest reserve by President Grover Cleveland, Cleveland in response to concern about the area's disappearing forests. And then it wasn't established as a national park until 1938, which is kind of crazy to think about considering, you know, it's almost like 50 years in the making, right? Um, I just, I didn't realize that before doing this research and this study of national park history that it took, takes so long for a national park to be kind of designated, or at least that it used to take so long. Um, so I found that kind of interesting. Um, it was the same with arches last week um, that we found, for those of you who remember that. And then I'm going to go into the indigenous history now. Um, there are eight Olympic Peninsula tribes who continue to recognize a relationship to the park uh, based on traditional land use, origins, beliefs, mythology, and spiritual beliefs and practices. And these are all listed on the National Park website. I'm just going to go ahead and read them, list them off. But it's the Lower Elwha, uh, Klalem, Jamestown, Saklalem, Port Gamble, Saklalem, Skokomish, Quinault, Ho, Quilayut, probably said that wrong, and Maka. It was the ancestors of these tribes that lived throughout the Olympic Peninsula, but ceded their lands and waters to the federal government through treaties in 1855 and 1856, and now live on reservations along the shores of the peninsula. Um, it is also said that elk, bison, wolves, and mastodons roamed the land, and humans roamed with them. And evidence of this was discovered when mastodon remains were found by a farmer in 1977 in Sequim, Washington. My, my husband's from Washington State, and he's probably going to hear me pronounce some of these things and be very disappointed in me. <laughs> uh, but in Sequim, Washington, these mastodon remains were found with a, a spearhead lodged in the mastodon's ribcage, indicating it was killed by a human. And for those of you who don't know, mastodons are mammoth-like creatures. Um, again, they're mammoth-like. They're not what we think when we think of mammoths as far as like like woolly mammoths, you know, like being super hairy and having these huge curved long tusks. Mastodons um, are described as having a shorter and more masculine build, um, more kind of stout. They had straight hair and shorter tusks that were more straight than curved as far as like in comparison to the mammoth tusks. Um, the ancestors of modern elephants and mammoths went their separate ways about 5 million years ago, and mastodons branched off even earlier about 25 million years ago. And then despite the changes wrought upon them, area tribes are working to sustain their long traditions. 
Uh, the Maka have revived the custom of whaling, a tradition that dates back thousands of years according to archaeological evidence. Coastal tribes continue their performance of a first salmon ceremony to honor and give thanks to salmon returning from the sea. They are passing on the teachings of their elders to preserve language and traditional arts like basket weaving and carving. Court decisions have reaffirmed the right of area tribes to carry on their fishing practices. Um, in 1974, a landmark court decision upheld tribal fishing rights retained under the 1855 treaties, including the protection of habitat. The protection and management of dwindling fish resources is a priority for the tribes as well as the park. The National Park Service also works with local tribes to protect not only the amazing natural, natural resources of the area, but also cultural connections with the parkland and resources. Throughout the mountains, forests, and coast lie the ancient footprints and stories that are an integral part of Olympic National Park. I wanted to touch on something that also was discovered in the state of Washington that I think um, is not imperative, but is good context to have when considering the history and some and the lore, I guess, behind like Olympic National Park and also the other national parks um, in Washington State, like North Cascades and Mount Rainier. Um, so it doesn't have anything specifically to do with Olympic, but it has to do with just the deep indigenous history and just, yeah, just how long people were here before settlers came here and established their, their history, right? So some of you may know or may have already heard about this, but in the mid to late 1990s, um, the remains of what is now known as the Ancient One or the Kennewick Man was discovered in Kennewick, Washington. Um, if you don't know, Kennewick, Washington is almost on the opposite corner of Washington from Olympic. Um, but they were found and they are, they've been dated to be over 9,000 years old, um, which it is incredibly rare to find remains in North America, at least, that are that old. So this was kind of a huge deal. Um, a lot of scientists were super excited when these remains were found, and there was this huge rush and influx of interest um, in the medical and scientific world, um, just because this these remains could tell us a lot about, um, you know, immigration, like how we got here sorry, not immigration, migration, <laughs> migration, how we got here. Because um, previously the dominant theory was that humans trekked here on foot around 13,000 years ago during the ice age when seas were lower and a land bridge temporarily connected Siberia and Alaska. But other evidence, there's also just a lot, of, there's a lot of theories, but other evidence also suggests that humans were already living on this continent well before that particular pathway was possible. So it's been kind of a debate. No one really knows for sure how anyone got here to begin with. So they were really excited when these remains were found. Um, and this is, I'm going to read little bits and pieces from this article I found from NPR talking about it. Um, but basically, since since then, since they were discovered, um, it's kind of been a tug of war between the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and also 
the various Native American tribes in the area who um, were claiming potential relation to these remains. Okay, so then it goes on to talk about how, you know, there have been varying theories over the years from, you know, like how, just from how we got here, you know, was it over the pathway, like I talked about from Siberia to Alaska, were people already here long before then? Um, did we, I mean, do we paddle? <laughs> was there one wave of people that came over all at once? Were there multiple waves? Um, yeah, there's just not a whole lot we know about that. And so again, the study of this is from, again, this is from the article that I'm reading this. A study of Kennewick's man's bones could reveal what he ate, what he drank, how he hunted, and of course, his DNA, all clues that ultimately tell the story of where he and his forebears came from and how they got here. But a group of Native American tribes considered the ancient one, as they call him, a direct tribal ancestor, and they didn't need science to explain how people ended up here. From our oral histories, we know that our people have been part of this land since the beginning of time, a leader of the Umatilla tribe wrote in a statement at the time. We do not believe that our people migrated here from another continent, as the scientists do. So essentially, the Native Americans were just like, listen, we know that we didn't migrate here. Like, we've, we, from our his, their history, from their stories and, you know, oral, again, like their oral history, they know, or they believe that they know that they were there from the beginning of time. They didn't come from anywhere else. They were from there. So it was just this tug and pull between science, between you know the government, between the Native American tribe. And it was kind of a feud that lasted all a long time. Um, and working together, the five tribes involved in this case demanded that the ancient one's remains not be poked and prodded in the name of science but instead be promptly reburied in accordance with tribal custom. And under the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, that federal law passed in 1990 requires certain Native American artifacts and remains to be handed over to culturally affiliated tribes or pro uh, provable descendants. Okay, then it also talks about for how these bones to fall under the protection of that uh, law that was passed in 1990, there had to be proof of a connection between the remains and the people fighting to reclaim them. Um, the scientists at the time said that no such connection existed, but the tribal leaders insisted it did. Um, and they could just, they had this gut feeling, like it says in the article that they could feel it in their bones. The question ended up spawning an unprecedented legal and ethical battle in which prominent archeologists and anthropologists would sue the US government for the chance to study the bones femur bones would just go missing under unexplained circumstances. Better arguments would be pushed over the migration patterns and feeding habits of sea lions, the curvature and racial implications of cheekbones, the validity of oral tradition as courtroom evidence, so on and so forth. So it raised a lot of questions. Like this discovery was a huge deal, not only just, I don't know, for us as humankind, kind of discovering who we are, where we came from, you know, potentially finding this key to all the answers, and then also just all these like ethical questions. Um, and that is something that anthropologists across the board, but like specifically archaeologists and probably biological anthropologists too, deal with a lot is just the question of who owns the past, right? Like, who owns 
the dead, for example, um, like, is it ethical to remove a body from where it was buried and put it in a lab and, or put it on display in museums for others to see? And like, think about that for like you specifically, like, how would you feel if after you died, you know, thousands of years from now, someone digs you up, takes you apart, puts you on display for others to see, like, how comfortable would you be with that? You know? And that's kind of something in the last, like, well, since like the 60s, 70s, uh, that's been a major issue in the field of anthropology as a whole. Um, but just, and yeah, across, around the world. Um, so yeah, this case brought up a lot of stuff. And it's really interesting because it also talks about how in this article, they're able to tell very specific things from just his bones alone. So it talks about how eventually the scientists did get legally approved uh, through very brief and highly constricted uh, look at the Kennewick man. And what they learned in the small time that they had with him is considered to be amazing. Um, Based on the shape of his skull and other features, they theorized that he or his forebears may have been Asian coastal seafarers. They may have journeyed by boat along the South Alaskan shoreline and ultimately all the way down to the Americas, hugging the coast and living off of kelp, fish, sea lions, and the like. Uh, This is the coastal migration theory of the peopling of the Americas, which suggests that a wave or possibly multiple waves of people traveled and lived along the Pacific coast long before other travelers chased herds of mastodons and mammoths across a land bridge into Alaska. Um, And this is from one of the scientists that um, was exposed to the Kennewick man and studied him and stuff. And this, I think this is really interesting. I don't know. I hope you guys do too. (laughs) This isn't like too science-y or something. But uh, he said that the Kennewick man spent a lot of time holding something in front of him while forcibly raising and lowering it. The researchers theorize he was hurling a spear downward into the water as seal hunters do. His leg bones suggest he often waded in shallow rapids, and he had bone growths consistent with surfer's ear caused by infrequent immersion in cold water. His knee joints suggest he often squatted on his heels, and many years before Kennewick Man's death, a heavy blow to his chest broke six ribs. Because he, he used his right hand to throw spears, five broken ribs on his right side never knitted together. This, and this is from the scientist, this man was one tough dude. So, yeah. And eventually, um, the remains of the Kennewick man were repatriated and reburied. Um, but from the brief time that scientists had to study him, that's what they were able to glean so yeah again that doesn't have anything specific to do with olympic national park but i just think it gives a good context i guess to again like the rich history that's involved with the area and just how deeply rooted this lore is as far as like the mythology mythologies and uh, theologies and all the stories that that come about
All right, so now we're going to kind of continue on with the indigenous history part of it, but kind of also slide into some of the weirder stuff. <laughs> so now we're going to talk about Bigfoot. Uh, there is are a ton of Bigfoot sightings um, in the Olympic National Park area and just in the state of Washington and Oregon as well. Um, apparently one third of Bigfoot sightings come from the Pacific Northwest area. And then this is a story from um, an indigenous, indigenous member um, about his encounter with Bigfoot. Um, this is the story of Boston Charlie. Uh, he is the last medicine man of the Kalam tribe. He homesteaded in the, the lower Elwha River area in the 1880s and often used the Olympic hot springs for spiritual cleansing. Boston Charlie lived to be about 100 and wandered the area for years. One time he fell and hurt himself while on his travels. He couldn't get up again and thought he was going to die there in the back country. At dusk, a huge being came up with berries wrapped in a big maple leaf and fed him. He survived this ordeal and was rescued, but never went into the mountains again. Very interesting. What was interesting to me, too, is that, like, I don't know, it was really hard to find good stories on Bigfoot just because, you know, there's always those people that, like, say, like, the craziest stuff about, oh, yeah, Bigfoot came up and shook me on the hand and, you know, things like that that just, like, are for sure, like, that did not happen. I'm not ruling out the existence of Bigfoot personally. I do not think it's that crazy that he would exist, would exist. Um, most of the stories I've heard, he seems to be a, or he, they, I don't know, the species in general seem to be very gentle uh, individuals who uh, don't try to cause harm or cause panic or anything like that. Like they aren't out to get anybody. They're just out there existing and they don't want to be found. You know, they're very elusive. And so, I mean, again, like I mentioned last episode, I do not think it's impossible to rule out the presence of humanoid-like creatures out there. Because again, this world is so big. Like, surely we don't know everything. Surely. So, but anyways, within the Bigfoot stories I was able to find, there were a lot of stories from, like, indigenous history that go back so long before like Bigfoot became like a popular thing to talk about you know I just found that really interesting and kind of like damning evidence too that like okay there might be something to this <laughs> you know people still claim to see him today um and it's been that case for hundreds of years specifically um somewhere specific that you can go in Olympic National Park um where it is said to have tons and tons of Bigfoot sightings is the Ho River Trail. Um, from what I was reading, I haven't personally done this trail. From what I was reading, you could find it at the Ho uh, Visitor Center in the National Park. Um, it's a pretty long hike, but um, a lot of people were saying that there have been many Bigfoot sightings there, and if you want a chance to see Bigfoot, that's where you go. So take that as you will. Um, and then I also thought it was interesting that there was 
I found an article, which I don't know. I didn't really look into the like specifics of this research, but supposedly in 2013, there was a, a scientific re- like research done on like biological evidence from Bigfoot where people like sent in like physical evidence that they believed that they had of Bigfoot from like hair to like other like DNA things. And um, I just thought it was interesting. Again, like I was only able to find one article about it from a website called The Leader. Uh, but that's the only one I was able to find it on. I wasn't able to find anything really backing it up. I wasn't able to find the study itself. Um, but apparently people said in saliva and hair, DNA, um, and this is from the article itself. In total, 111 specimens of uh, purported Sasquatch hair, blood, skin, and other tissue types were analyzed for the study According to a press release, samples were submitted by individuals in groups at 34 different hominin research sites in 14 states and two Canadian provinces. Uh, one of the teams sequenced 20 whole and 10 partial mitochondrial genomes, as well as three whole nuclear genomes from the samples. Um, and then let me see. Okay. Well, the three Sasquatch nuclear genomes aligned well with one another and showed significant homology to human chromosome 11. The Sasquatch genomes were novel and fell well outside of known ancient hominin as well as ape sequences. Uh, Ketchum, I think he's like the main scientist in this, said in the press release. Because some of the mtDNA haplogroups found in our Sasquatch samples originated as late as 13,000 years ago, we are hypothesizing that the Sasquatch are human hybrids, the result of males of an unknown hominin species crossing with female homo sapiens. So, yeah, take that as you will. But I thought that was kind of humorous, but also just kind of interesting. Like, again, I don't know. I wasn't able to find the actual study itself. That's just from one article. But take that as you will. now we're going to go into some spooky stories so buckle up a little bit of true crime a little bit spooky um this next story i'm going to be talking about it is i want to put like a light graphic warning on this like I try, I'm going to try not to get too descriptive but i also want to talk about it so i'm just giving you a warning in case you have children around you or in case you're super sensitive to this type of stuff like here's your warning um but again i try not to get like too too bad with my true crime stuff just because there are other podcasts for that and that's not really what i want to focus on but i do think that there are still some noteworthy and interesting cases to talk about so without further ado we're going to be talking about lake crescent Okay, so Lake Crescent is a part of the Olympic National Park. Um, I have only driven past it. Well, I guess before, I I don't think I've mentioned this. Well, yes, I did. Yes, I did. But my husband, (laughs) my husband is from Washington State. And last year, um, we went to go visit his parents who lived there at the time. 
uh, in the Seattle area. And while we were there, we um, visited all of the national parks in Washington and just went on a lot of really pretty scenic drives. And we went to Na- Olympic National Park. And on the way home, we kind of took the long way and went up to like Port Angeles and then went down to Seattle kind of that way. Um, but anyways, on our way from the Ho Rainforest to Port Angeles, we passed, uh, we drove by Lake Crescent as it was kind of getting dark. And I just remember just it being so beautiful and serene and thinking like, wow, like how, what a pretty place. Like, that'd be so cool to like come back here and like kayak or something. Yeah, no, after learning more <laughs> about this lake, I you will not find my body on this lake. Let's just, yeah, you'll find out in a little bit. Okay, so the Kalam and Kulet tribes, I believe I said those right, apologize if I didn't, but those two tribes tell stories of a great war that happened in the Lake Crescent area many, many, many years ago. Mount Storm King, which is a mountain that looms over the lake, uh, supposedly grew angry at the fighting between these two tribes and threw a great rock from its own peak, crushing every single warrior on both sides of this war, um, efficiently separating Lake Crescent from what is Lake Sutherland. So it essentially made a dam between these two lakes. And there's geological evidence that um, actually supports this to a degree from a scientific point of view at least. Um, But anyways, there is geological evidence that suggests that there was a massive landslide about 8,000 years ago that separated the two bodies of water. And due to the lack of inflowing water into Lake Crescent, it is extremely deficient in nitrogen and phosphorus, which uh, promotes the growth of algae. Because of this, Lake Crescent is uncommonly crystalline. It's very clear, very like a deep blue. And it also holds some... uh, Let's just say unique properties. We're going to go into that now. Now we're going to talk about the Lady of the Lake. Okay. All right. On July 6, 1940, the Rolf brothers were fishing on Lake Crescent when they discovered a body wrapped in two blankets and secured with a rope. It was not just this discovery of a body that alarmed them, but also the condition in which the body was found. It appeared to be the body of a young woman, but she was described as looking more like a marble statue or a mannequin than a real human. She was wearing a green dress and there were still visible purple bruising around her neck from what is assumed to be strangulation. She was estimated to be in her mid thirties and the quality of her skin was unlike any other that the coroner pathologist, sheriff, or the Rolf brothers had ever seen. Again, this is where it gets a little graphic. It is described as being a rubbery, waxy, soap-like substance, and with absolutely no odor or sign of decomposition. This is known as uh, saponification. I hope I said that right. Which is when the water is cold enough that it halts the decomposition process and the presence of salt in the water um, preserves the body. So with those two elements together, the coldness of the water and also the presence of salt, um, it preserved the body. She was mummified in a way. 
The body was buried right outside of Port Angeles, while officials searched for the identity of what the unidentified woman had been dubbed by locals as the Lady of the Lake. Fourteen months after the discovery of the body, she was identified using her unique dental records. Um, And let me see if I can find exactly what those unique dental records were. Okay, so I was able to find an article that talked more about the dental records. Um, It says that it was her dentistry that revealed her identity. And her mouth was a six-tooth bridge made of beaten gold. Pictures of the unique bridge were circulated around more than 5,000 dentists across the country. A dentist in South Dakota recognized it immediately as his own work and identified the unknown woman. She was identified as Hallie Ellingsworth, a woman from Port Angeles who was a waitress at the Lake Crescent Tavern on Crescent Lake. Hallie was last seen alive on December 22, 1937. Her abusive husband, um, after just a four-hour trial, was convicted of her murder. Um, Apparently, there was a very tumultuous relationship between the two of them. They were often uh, both seen in public fighting um, either in Port Angeles or right outside of the tavern where she worked. Um, Co-workers of hers described um, her coming into work with covered in bruises and broken teeth and stuff like that. And so there was very obvious abuse happening. um, And they were ultimately able to pin it on him because of the rope that was used um, to tie her up. Um, It was the exact same rope that was, I think it was manufactured. It could have just been sold, but anyways, the same rope that was found at his place of work. Uh, where he had supposedly asked the owner if he could borrow some rope, and then that rope was never returned. So, yeah. Um, Unfortunately, he only served nine years in prison and lived out the rest of his days in California until his death in 1975. How unfair is that? It's always so frustrating to me when you hear about these cases. I mean, this was a long time ago. Um, You know, 1930s, 1940s. But still, like, just how infuriating is it that he literally murdered his wife and he only spent nine years in prison? Very frustrating. Um, but it is said that Hallie, the Lady of the Lake, still lingers the Lake Crescent area. And she has been spotted gliding across the water's edge and aboard nearby ferry boats. Um, and Ellingsworth was not the only one of the Lake Crescent victims. Um, In 1956, an ambulance uh, careened off US-101 at Meldrum Point, um, plunging into Lake Crescent and killed one person. In 2002, a 1927 Chevy was discovered in Lake Crescent's depths, finally closing the case on a couple that had been missing since 1929. Uh, They were entombed in Lake Crescent's icy water for 73 years. In a chilling interview that was released, by the FBI in 2013, convicted serial killer Israel Keys insinuated that he dumped his victims in the cursed lake. You guys know about Lake Crescent in Washington, right? He taunted his interrogators. Creepy. So they don't really know how many secrets Lake Crescent hides. It is said to be cursed. I think I forgot to mention this, but with the whole indigenous lore 
on the lake as far as the mountain throwing the rock down and you know killing the warriors on both sides and stuff it's so when that happened that the lake became cursed so yeah with that lore already there then all these bodies just being like just showing up and all these people dying there all of a sudden um it raised a lot of concern from the locals and the uh news of this lake being haunted or cursed became super widespread after Hallie Ellingsworth um, was discovered in the lake. Uh, She was the first person, actually, that we know of that has been discovered in the lake. And then, this is concerning, very concerning to me, but this is from Dr. Charles P. Larson, who is a Tacoma-based pathologist who assisted with the Ellingsworth examination in the 40s. He said... If you could ever ever get down into the underground stream that flows from Lake Crescent to Lake Sutherland, you would probably find somewhere from 50 to 150 bodies, all of which have turned to soap. Gross and so scary. So yeah, that's the story of the Lady of the Lake and Lake Crescent. Um, I'm sure there are many more stories, but those are the ones that sounded the most interesting to me. And then other kind of haunted stories. Um, The Lake uh, Quinault Lodge um, is said to be haunted by a ghost named Beverly. Beverly died in an attic fire at the lodge in the early 1900s and is said to still wander the halls of the lodge. She can also be seen opening windows from time to time and just kind of going about her daily business. Um, The Calaloc Kalosh, I'm not sure how it's said, Kalok Lodge is said to be very haunted. Um, there were a couple stories from this. Some of them like contradicted others. And I found some sources that said like, oh yeah, it's not haunted at all. And others that claimed it's super haunted. But the stories varied from a haunted booth in the restaurant. Um, booth number 208 supposedly makes men who sit there feel very aggravated and ghosts of random men supposedly pop up in that booth when no one was there like except for like workers so that's concerning um and then there's also uh said to be small children running the halls in nearby beach which that's a big old note for me but you know and then i did find this story from reddit um that i thought was really interesting And so I'm going to go ahead and talk about that. Um, This is from a user with the username Zuzu of the Wolves. And with the topic line, Olympic National Park is very haunted. So this is their story. I'm doing seasonal workout in Olympic National Park this summer and live in employee housing on the same property as my job. Throughout the summer, I have heard things like a giggle coming from my empty room and a sliding door closing on its own. One night, about a month ago, something wild happened. The building I live in is backed up against an impenetrable coastal rainforest, and some friends and I were sitting in one of the apartment units chatting while we all noticed screaming coming from the woods. Initially, we thought it was a cougar, but it kept going, and it was decidedly human-sounding. Sometimes it seemed more like sobbing, and in other moments it was frantic yelling. 
It went on for about five intense minutes and then stopped. Now the truly chilling part. About 30 seconds after the yelling stopped, what sounded like a disembodied woman's voice coming through a radio started muttering right next to where we were sitting. We couldn't make out what she was saying and it only lasted a few seconds. It was in the room with us, but we couldn't see anything. One of my friends opened the door to make sure there was no one outside and we were completely alone. It should also be noted that everyone who lives in the building were all in the same room, so all of the other units were empty. All of us who live here have puzzled over any logical explanation for what could have happened and just can't seem to find one. So, yeah, <laughs> that's crazy, right? But I don't know, when I was reading through these stories of these hauntings, both from like more modern times, like you know, Halle Illingworth, um, to kind of like the more in-depth lore of the area from like the indigenous people and stuff. Like you have to think like there have been people occupying this area for a very long time. And for me specifically, when I think of like ghost stories and stories of like creatures, like cryptids, like Bigfoot or skinwalkers or whatever else, um, I don't know. I just kind of have to think about how, you know, it, it kind of makes sense to me because like the energy would still be around from those ancient peoples and their stories and their lore, you know, that same energy. And I've been to Olympic and there is just something different about that area. Not in like a creepy way for me specifically, but it was just like, I don't know, just like this deep rooted feeling of like, this place is ancient. Like there's a lot going on here than meets the eye. Like I just kind of kept having those thoughts and feelings the whole time we were there. And it wasn't like an uneasy feeling. It wasn't like a creepy feeling. It was just more of like a, I don't know, just like a really deep rooted feeling of like knowing, I guess is like the only really way, real way that I can describe it for me personally. That's just my experience. I also read Reddit posts of people talking about how they just felt creeped out the whole time. So <laughs> whatever, you're up, up to you guys. But for me personally, that's kind of how I felt in the park. It wasn't a scary feeling or like I'm being watched feeling or need to watch my back or anything. It was more of a just this place has a lot of history and a lot of energy type feeling. I don't know. So yeah. I'm all done with scary, creepy stories. Now I'm going to kind of talk about um, my suggestions for the area. Again, I've been there. Um, honestly, when we went, it was me and my husband and my father-in-law. And we just drove. And if we saw something cool, we stopped. Um, we did stop and looked at a couple of really big trees. Like, basically, if there was any sign for big trees we stopped and <laughs> we go look at it and they were really cool um and it, it was in the national park area sorry national forest area and also the national park but there's some spruce like old like cedar trees some old spruce trees things like that they're just like pretty cool um so yeah it's just fun to just kind of drive around keep your eyes open and take your time stop where you think would be cool to stop um 
that was just kind of fun for us to do to have no really like tight itinerary of like we have to do this this and this we did have like we did want to go to the whole rainforest which 1000 percent recommend i saw some people who dared to say that it was overhyped do not listen to them it was definitely not overhyped um it was absolutely beautiful the hall of mosses trail specifically it's less than a mile um there's a little bit of incline but like nothing crazy it's very kid friendly um yeah it's just super amazing and just looks unreal um and with that the ho rainforest fun fact gets around 14 feet of water every year which is insane considering that seattle which is not far away is considered the rainiest city at least in the u.s um it only averages about 36 inches a, inches a year. The whole rainforest gets 14 feet. So that's pretty crazy. It is like a legit rainforest, so like it was humid when we went. Um, but yeah, it was amazing. It looked like something straight out of Lord of the Rings. It just looked something up straight out of like a fairy tale. You know, so highly, highly recommend that. It's a really easy semi-quick little stop. We definitely took our time and really soaked it all in. That was a really special part of the park for me specifically. Again, just a different feeling there. Just not a creepy feeling, but just, I don't know. It was just different. Um, and then if you're a Twilight fan, <laughs> which I'm actually not. I was never a Twilight person. I don't hate on people who like Twilight, but I just, I never really got it when I was a teenager. Um, I did watch all the movies. I didn't read the books. Um, but there are some Twilight sites near the in and near the Olympic Park area, like La Push Beach. Um, you can go there. That's in the movie. I think that's where Bella like jumps off the cliff or whatever. Um, yeah, <laughs> and I think it's in New Moon. She jumps off. Anyways, you can go visit that place. Forks, Washington, is right outside Olympic National Park. Um, I've been there. I did see uh, Carlisle Cullen's parking spot at the Forks Community Hospital. <laughs> we did drive around loosely and see a couple places, but like for me, it was very underwhelming. Like I know people who were like, it's like their their bucket list and stuff, which that's fine. You can still go, just like don't plan on making it like a whole thing, because there's really a whole not a whole lot to do. It's just a small logging town. Um, yeah, so that's there too, if you want it. And then when we went, it was May, mid, like mid to end of May, and it was pretty chilly. So, and, and it was rainy for a lot of the trip. Ironically, not in the part when we went to Forks, it was like pure sunshine. <laughs> uh, so that was kind of funny, but, um, yeah, be sure to dress accordingly the beaches there are very windy, different from any beach I had been to before. This is the first time I'd ever been to like a cold beach. Um, so yeah, just kind of plan accordingly, but it's a really beautiful area. It's fun to drive around. There's a lot of other uh, places to see like um, Tree Root Cave and some other stuff like that. So again, I would recommend on just not having like a set itinerary, especially if you don't plan on doing any insane hikes, like just plan on driving out there looking for fun signs of things to 
pull over and look at and take your time and just really soak it all in because that's what we did and I'm glad that we did it that way. Then to close out this episode, I'm going to tell a story. One more story. This is not a scary story. I thought this was actually pretty interesting. But I got this from the Seattle Times. And the title says, Woman, 71, lost in Olympic National Park with dog, built shelter, ate ants. Intriguing, right? Okay. So I'm going to just read little bits of this from the article. I'll summarize a lot of it, but read little bits that uh, say it better than I could. So, on her 71st birthday, Sajin Gear pulled her Ford Explorer into the side of a dirt road and ventured into the wilderness. All she had with her was a pair of sunglasses, the clothes on her back, her cell phone, her car keys, an urn, and her dog, Yoda. The urn held the ashes of Gear's husband of 34 years, Jack, who died in December after a heart attack. For months, she had mourned his death in a state of shock. Um, she says that she got through that and she was ready to complete that, her, that cycle of her life. She said that she'll, she was going to honor it, she'll cherish it, but that she knew that she needed to move on. Um, apparently, she had promised uh, her husband that she'd scatter his ashes at his two favorite places in the world, the Kona Coast on the big island of Hawaii and near obstruction point inside Olympic National Park. Um, so she said it was kind of, a sp- it, like, I'll just kind of summarize this, but, like, she, it was a spur-of-the-moment decision where she had made this promise to her husband before he passed, and then he passed kind of suddenly, and, you know, a couple of months had gone by, and she just kind of felt this urge one day just to, like, take care of it. Like, she just needed to take care of it, move on, you know, honor his life, and just kind of move on from that stage of mourning like she needed just to to deal with it which I respect um but kind of in a she said it was kind of an emotional thing she she went out there it was her birthday and she just decided to that she's just gonna do it um she started walking and she describes it her being well she describes herself being very emotional and that she doesn't know exactly how far and how long she was walking. She wasn't really paying attention. She had a lot in her mind, a lot of feelings to process, um, which again, don't blame her. Um, But so anyway, she had walked pretty far, scattered, well, she spread his ashes and then realized that she had lost her bearing. Um, Hoping to catch sight of the road from a high point, she climbed a hill, but slipped and sent the urn tumbling below, which rip kind of sad so she lost the urn but with the dust settling over the range she was embarrassed to realize that she was lost she says all my outdoor experience had been hiking on trails with signs and i hadn't had experience in total wilderness like that all i could see is trees i couldn't find anything to orient myself with she said as the light waned she found a log to sleep beneath and curled up next to yoda her dog It would be the first of six nights she spent in the wilderness alone. The next day, she spent the day walking. Um, She said she was wearing a Hawaiian shirt, no jacket, no water bottle, no knife, nothing useful, really. Um, Her shoes are described as hardly having any traction to them even. But Gear was an avid reader. And some years ago, she became interested in foraging and survival. Um, and read a ton of books on the topic. 
So she knew she had to do four things. She had to find water, not get injured seriously, find or build shelter, and she had to be visible to be rescued. And she also said a positive attitude was key. She says, you have to have something in your head to keep you motivated and alive. She reflected on friends, family, and her life. Um, on the third day, she decided to hunker down and wait for rescue. She hadn't told anyone, which is a, this is a little tip. If you ever get going to go on an excursion by yourself, tell people what your plans are. <laughs> tell people where you're going to go, when you're expected to be back. Like, yeah, these things are important because she hadn't told anybody. It was her birthday. She apparently had spoken to her brother that morning who called her to wish her happy birthday, but she didn't even tell him. She didn't tell anybody. So she knew that because of this, it could take days, if not weeks, for people to not only realize that she was missing, but then also to find her. So she manages to uh, build herself a shelter where two logs converged. She built walls and a ceiling with tree branches and used mark, uh, mark, moss and bark to plug holes in the wall. Um, and then at night, the temperatures reached the mid-40s, but she snuggled with her little dog, Yoda, who is apparently a chihuahua mix. <laughs> you just imagine this 71-year-old woman just out there with her little chihuahua dog wearing a Hawaiian shirt, just like lost in the forest. This poor woman. Um, but every day she'd go and drink. She made, she, well, she was nearby a creek and she'd go with her dog. They'd both drink water. Um, she said for the first three days, hunger wasn't really an issue for her, surprisingly. But by day four, she began to crave cherries. Um, so she started scavenging currants and young pine needles. And then an ant bit her, which sparked an idea. She said, I go, well, I've got a bigger mouth than you. So I ate it. So she started eating ants. And then she said her dog started eating flies. So that's, yeah. And then, anyways, her brother uh, got word from someone else that he that his sister wasn't responding to any messages, which was out of character for her. Uh, he ended up contacting the police. Um, they didn't know what had happened, if she'd been abducted, if she, like was sick or like what if she fell and like injured herself like they didn't know they didn't know where she was or anything but then a park ranger uh found her vehicle in olympic national park um and so then the search began um with an aerial search it says and then gear heard the helicopters and planes overhead several times um but one day it became very obvious to her that they were circling, like looking for something. And she's assumed it was for her, which she was right. But she went out and found a spot that was sunny and she jumped on a log and started waving at them. And then they went and grabbed her. Uh, she was doing great when they found her, supposedly. They gave her a cliff bar, a bagel, and a blue Gatorade. Very specific. But then they took her to the hospital uh, where she was reunited with her brother and his family. Um, she was a little dehydrated. She was scraped. Um, she had some mosquito bites, but she was otherwise fine. Um, she was released that evening from the hospital. She said that that night she ate some cherries and recounted her adventure to her brother and her family. Um, and then at the end, she talks about like what she learned about herself, which I thought was kind of 
cool. Like she kind of took it as like a personal learning experience for herself instead of like a making it this big traumatic thing. Um, it was kind of like a, almost like a soul walk of sorts, like a walkabout, you know, she had went out, she was in grief for her husband, but she went out and into nature and she was by herself. She didn't have any outside distractions. I'm sure she was scared, but she also had a lot of time to just reflect and really confront her emotions and her grief. And it helped that time in the, the lost, you know, it really, it helped her kind of process these feelings. And she says, uh, when you're by yourself up in the wilderness and nobody talk except your dog, you learn about a lot about yourself. She said, I forced myself to look at decisions I made that put me in my situation. I made a lot of mistakes. I was really encouraged by myself. I didn't panic. I was calm. I was glad I had the knowledge to figure out what to do. She said, I was grateful for everything in my life, my friends, my family. In the woods, she felt her late husband's presence. It is time to let go and let your own light shine and stand up, she realized. The situation forced me. I realized I had to be on my own and move on with my life. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and close this episode. Thank you for listening. Um, If you have any more little interesting facts about this park that you'd like to share, let me know. Um, And I'll be glad to share it with the class. Um, but yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting. And again, if you could just subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts, um, that'd be fantastic. Continue to share it with your friends. Thank you for all the support and I will see you next week.